Hello, and welcome to ADHD Essentials, part of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brendan Mahan. I'm a former teacher and mental health clinician turned ADHD coach, trainer, and consultant. I can be reached at brendan at adhdessentials.com. Here at ADHD Essentials, we help families develop the skills and knowledge needed to better manage attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Visit ADHDessentials.com for more details. The ninth annual online ADHD Awareness Expo is going on now, and I'm a part of it. My topic, three ways to communicate with your child besides talking. Register at www.adhdexpo.com slash ADHD Essentials to let them know I sent you. Also, to celebrate ADHD Awareness Month, I'm offering a special discount on this winter's ADHD parent coaching groups. The groups will begin in January, but if you register for early sign-up during the month of October, not only will you lock in your spot, you'll also get the equivalent of one week free. Visit www.adhdessentials.com slash signup to register for your free pre-screening call now. Or go to www.adhdessentials.com slash parentgroups for more details. And yes, all of those links are in the show notes. This is episode 41. In today's episode, we're talking to Mr. Kayerook. He's an old buddy of mine and a veteran high school English teacher. I really enjoyed our wide-ranging conversation, both when we had it and when I listened to it again during the editing process. We get into some interesting corners of both ADHD and education. We talk about everything from the interplay between ADHD and poverty, to the various red flags teachers keep an eye out for, and to the ways teachers work to help the unmet needs of their students when those red flags are spotted. Mr. Kayarook even shares some stories about his students, including a school shooting threat that ended up being a prank, and how he used a failed test to help a student find success. All right, let's get rolling. I've done everything from eighth grade reading help to 11th grade AP. Um, the only group I've never worked with is 12th graders. English is one of the more executive functioning heavy course loads. Definitely. Any project you're going to give the kids is going to be long-term. It's going to be of some significance and they have to break that down. And in high school, even the, uh, the, the smaller projects, they all stitch together. You know, it's let's work on this theme or this idea. And now let's look at three short stories and analyze how this one thing works. So they're, they're constantly referring back and constantly working on, uh, on those, those higher levels, as well as, you know, the, you're, you're reading a novel at the same time as you're reading its chapters. So the smaller lessons are combining to form a bigger concept. Exactly. You might read three short stories that all with, deal with the theme of loss and really we're working on loss, but in doing so, we break it down into smaller, smaller short stories to help us look at loss from different angles. And frequently we'll, we'll throw in uh, news articles or this web story or um, you know, an example from here or a video from there to kind of shore up the, uh, the idea there and really kind of relate back to those themes. So mixing nonfiction in with fiction. Been a huge push on the state level for that over the last few years. How do you find ADHD is playing out 
in your classroom, given the executive function heaviness of it? In some ways, that's hard for me to answer. Over the last 10 years, I think the lowest number we've had is about 35% of our school population on IEPs, and ADHD is the vast majority of that. Really? Yes. We, uh, we tend to, to have a lot of uh, struggle in that area, but we also have a lot of uh, mechanisms in place because of that. And so for me, in some ways, it's hard for me to separate out, all right, how do I deal with the ADHD and how do I just deal with my students because so many of my students are already dealing with those issues. So what are the issues that are coming up? Going exactly opposite from what I just said, probably the biggest issue that I see, in particular teaching ninth graders, is there's a huge difference in maturity between the students with ADHD and the students without, in particular the male students. Mm -hmm. And that difference sometimes makes it hard to get to certain projects, to work with certain ideas or themes. You know, if the, the boys are giggling about the fact that, you know, Romeo just made a, uh, a crude joke, if they even get it, um, it's kind of hard to talk about like, well, why did he say this? Or what's the effect going to be over here? And if you have those other students that are already on that level and trying to talk about that, and one student in the back giggling because he just said something crude, it, it really derails the class at times. Mm -hmm. um, that being said, you know, some of what we end up doing in, in part to deal with that is confronting the issues head on. Uh, if we know already that we're going to be dealing with uh, maturity issues, then we put certain things in place, try to separate the students who are going to play off of each other on that, make sure and, you know, address it head on. You know, there's nothing more disrupting to a class when there's something the teacher doesn't want to talk about than the teacher trying to ignore it. If you deal with it head on, you get the rise out of them and then you move on. You know, you, you get them excited about it. You get them kind of charged with it. And I can't believe we're talking about this in class. And, you know, then we're talking about something else. And I assume you're talking to, like, if you know a kid well enough that you're like, oh man, this joke, as soon as this kid figures out what, what it is, he's going to go off the rails. I'm assuming uh -huh. you're taking that kid aside before class even starts and you're like, listen, here's the joke. Keep it reined in. Mm -hmm. I've done that or I've, uh, I've kind of made a, a class joke about it, you know, like, and yes, Trevor, that's exactly what we're talking about here. He does his like, what face? And then, you know, we move on. He laughs, we laugh, we turn it into a thing. And then we can kind of use that momentum, that sort of uh, excitement and, and turn that into an actual effective class. Less about trying to make that kid feel bad about his sense of humor, more about sort of recognizing that this is the kid's sense of humor. Exactly. And sort of noting that and letting him have that moment. Letting what you know is going to happen happen, but not letting it get out of hand. And that's awesome. That's a great way to navigate that. And often that's what kids with ADHD need because they, they can get caught up in the dopamine ride of the laughing and the excitement and the impulsivity of it. And the next thing you know, they're still going when it's time to stop. It's not going to take up the entire class, but you might lose five minutes. So you mentioned that about 35% of the kids in your school are in IEPs, and the vast majority of them are ADHD. Mm -hmm. Anywhere from 35 to, I think, one year we had a little over 50. Wow. Yeah. Do you have any guesses as to why that is? Because that's not typical. We should be looking at about 10% of the kids have ADHD. Sounds like you're beyond that. Um, number one, the area in which I work is, has had a lot of uh, problems. Um, without going into too many specifics, one of the elder teachers when I was first hired 
explained to me, you know, the, half the problems here are because in the seventies, when the mills closed, the bars stayed open. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, it's an area that has had uh, a lot of poverty issues, a lot of maintenance issues. Uh, even when certain other towns have kind of pulled themselves up or revitalized here or changed there, there's actually been a certain amount of pushback in town to making any large changes. And as a result, you know, they're, they're facing some, some major issues now. It's difficult because that turns into the idea that, you know, because we have this problem, that ends up turning into a poverty problem. That poverty problem turns into an affordability problem. The affordability problem turns into a job problem. And these people that don't have a support system, that don't have any sort of coping skills, that are working this kind of job or not working because of this, frequently end up kind of lumped together in uh, affordable housing. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's a small portion, but I definitely think it is a portion. Okay. And I wonder too about um, the systemic nature of executive functioning skills, because folks with ADHD tend to struggle with executive functioning skills. Mm. When I say executive functioning skills, I'm talking about everything from planning and prioritizing to time management, to emotional regulation, to impulse control, to initiating tasks. If I lack those skills, it's going to be harder for me to teach my kid those skills. And if my kid doesn't have those skills, when he grows up or she grows up, they're going to be less successful because in order to be successful, you have to have those executive functioning skills. Mm -hmm. Less success means less income, which can lead to poverty. It doesn't have to, but it can. And so if we've got an entire class or town of people that are sort of stuck in this cycle of we're not learning the executive functioning skills from our parents because mom and dad have ADHD or just because they never learned them from their parents for whatever reason, Mm -hmm. you're going to be more likely to land in a situation that's, if not close to poverty, then actually is poverty. Yeah. And how do we break that cycle if ADHD is so prominent um, and we've got those struggles? A lot of it, one solution is to start building those executive functions into schools, which I'm sure is what you guys are doing because I've been a piece of that. Mm -hmm. But I, I guess I'm wondering how much of that higher percentage of ADHD that you're describing mm-hmm. is, is a sort of a consequence of that or how much of the poverty is a consequence of the higher. Or how much do they, you know, kind of reinforce each other, you know, perpetually. Right. I think there's definitely a little bit of each. And, you know, I, I don't know all the people and all their stories. I'm assuming there's probably a mix of all of it. Uh, I know systemically there's a lot of uh, studies that have gone on with, you know, what some people refer to as the culture of poverty. There's a great deal of what you were talking about, about difficulty with executive functioning that goes hand in hand, both with ADHD and this concept of culture of poverty. You know, you aren't going to learn how to be effectively managing your time when you're too worried about short-term worries because the short-term is what you have to deal with and you never get to the long-term because you're in survivor mode. Yeah. How do I figure out long-term goals if I can only live short-term goal to short-term goal to short-term goal? No, and, and I, no answers here on this podcast for that, but, yeah. but that's sort of where my head went just then. Mm-hmm. And there's definitely, you know, in our town, because we're dealing with both of these issues and because they reinforce each other so much, um, there's a great deal that we try to do to kind of work on one portion or another. What sort of things are you doing? 
Uh, one of the biggest, um, I know it's a buzzword. I don't know if your uh, your listeners have heard the the concept of uh, differentiated instruction at all. Walk us through that just in case. The idea is, and this is going to sound like a no-brainer once you really stop and think about it, you're not teaching the book, for instance, in an English class. You're teaching the skill. If the skill is reading, you're teaching reading. If you've got one kid who's a really good reader, giving him the same text as everybody else isn't really teaching him as much. He's actually getting less out of the lesson because he's doing the same amount when he can, in fact, do more. And at the same time, if you have another student who is struggling and they're pushing hard to, to get through the same uh, lesson, they're doing twice as much work to get to the same place. And sometimes that could cause them to shut down. Sometimes that can cause them to make the gains, uh, you know, depending on what's going on and, you know, what other portions or, or uh, mechanisms are in place. So the concept of differentiated instruction is the idea that you focus on the goal and you try to give different tiers. Sometimes it's addressing a specific student. Sometimes it's, you know, just the idea of, well, we have three different things you can do here. This group is going to work on this. They're going to do the reading and do this reading and do this reading. Group two is going to finish the reading and do these questions and lead us in a discussion. And group three is going to work on this other idea and then talk about that, you know, how they affect, uh, you know, the, the first two. And then they're, they're all doing work that is appropriate for their level of, of skill. Mm -hmm. They're making appropriate gains. They're frequently checking back in with each other. So they're getting the same amount out of the lesson because of the, uh, the input from the other groups. And you don't have that one kid who's bored in the corner over there because they finished the work and want to go to sleep. You don't have that other kid who's only half done with the lesson when it's time to move on. Because I like to support teachers on this podcast. Mm -hmm. um, I just want to point out for my audience that that sounds like a lot of work for the teacher. It can be. And again, it's, uh, it's starting to become expected, especially in, uh, in schools in Massachusetts. A lot of um, buzzwording from the, you know, from the state on down on this one. It is good practice, and yes, it can be very tiring. Minimizing the number of levels you have can help. Um, sometimes it's just this additional thing, and it's not just, you know, Bobby over there does four questions because he's faster instead of three. It's really trying to put together a, a multifaceted lesson. But it sounds like you're potentially creating three separate lessons for one class. Our, our school is also on, uh, on block scheduling still, so we have 85-minute classes. And sometimes we're doing this twice mm -hmm. in an eight-minute class. And block scheduling means? Block scheduling is uh, we have two semesters a year. We have four classes uh, per semester, and the classes are 85 minutes long. So it's just a longer class. It's a longer class, but fewer of them. In theory, the kids can focus on you know, the, the, the three academic or four classes over, or you know, total classes that they have mm -hmm. a little more. It's got its merits. It's got its flaws. Uh, there was a big change in the 90s, and some schools changed back. Other schools didn't. Thinking about ADHD and 85-minute classes, that's a long time. <laughs> yeah. So how do, you, how do you keep kids engaged for 85 minutes? That's, that's almost an hour and a half. Uh-huh. Got to have kids with ADHD who are 15 minutes in or like, I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. What's next? So how do you keep them hooked? Number one, schedule, schedule, schedule. I have every day when they walk in the room – there is a roadmap of what we're going to be doing on the board that day. So you're setting expectations in advance. Exactly. Right away. There is a goal 
another thing down from the state, you know, students will be able to clearly by the end of this lesson. Uh, in English, that's a little harder because our units are longer. We're working on multiple things in multiple different ways. Uh, but in, for instance, a science class, the specific goal of the day or a math class, the specific operation that you're working on, clearly spelled out in a goal can be really helpful, helpful for the students right off the bat. I try to have a minimum of three different things that we're doing in any given class. Try to make the first one a little more interesting to kind of wake them up, get them active. The second one might be a little more difficult. And then the third one is frequently more group or cool down. And that way they get something out of it, but they're not expected to be, you know, on that highest level of functioning all the time. There's certain breaks uh, that we can take. Our school actually went over to a, a food program actually this past year where we have breakfast for them first thing in the morning in, in their first block class. And we have food in the back of the room for them, anything left over from breakfast that they can eat realistically at any time if they're hungry. You know, there's no problem with a kid getting up, walking to the other side of the room, grabbing a, you know, a, a bag of animal crackers and sitting down and then kind of going back to work. That's awesome. Yeah. And it works in these little breaks too. And it's a, uh, it's a really big help. I like that because one of the things that I've sort of been, one of the drums I've been pounding recently mm -hmm. is um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Mm -hmm. and how we don't pay enough attention to that. So I talk about it. It doesn't always come up in my ADHD workshops, but it consistently comes up in my social emotional learning workshops. It's a major component of that. And also my parent, the parenting groups, I'm running online parent coaching groups, teaching parents about ADHD and how to parent more effectively. One of the things I talk about there is Maslow's hierarchy of needs and how school or a job is really high on Maslow's hierarchy, right? Your bottom stuff is biological needs. I'm hungry. I need some food. Mm -hmm. Then we've got safety. And then we've got belongingness, like that social component. And then we start to get to achievement and we start to hit where school lives. Yeah. So it's really great to hear that you're tackling that biological need way down the bottom of the kids hungry, they need to eat. And one of the one of the biggest challenges in schools is that other biological need of, I have to go to the bathroom. Mm -hmm. And so often we've got teachers who are like, no, you don't, you're bored. Okay, maybe, or maybe the yeah. kid needs to go to the bathroom. Like as a teacher, I always just assumed they had to go to the bathroom. And mm -hmm. if they left too often, I would say things like, I'm getting a little worried about you. I think you might, should I call home and see if maybe you need to go to the doctors to find out if there's something wrong? Because you're going to the bathroom a lot. And then they usually reined it in. We've had some students have issues with wandering around the building, ending up in the middle school, things like that. Uh, but other than that, we tend to just let them go when they say they have to go. It's not a big deal. Honestly, those students that are going every class, if they're not like meeting up with their girlfriend or something like that, they're probably just needing to stretch their legs, especially if it's a student that you know that you know can really reasonably get caught up they're not going to miss anything. You can kind of time it right. You can say, you know, can you just wait five minutes till we're done with this? Or can you finish these questions or something like that? Or, you know, are you done with the chapter? When you're done with the chapter, like here's your pass, here you go, no big deal. It shouldn't be a big deal. You know, we're, we're constantly vigilant for the ones who abuse the privilege, but it's not a privilege. Sometimes it's just a need. You're right. If I had my druthers, kids wouldn't even need a pass, but I understand yeah. why you need to do that stuff because some of them are dealing drugs or causing mischief or whatever, especially once you get to the high school level. Those are actual real concerns. 
we actually had a lockdown this past year because uh, there was a, a shooting threat written in the bathroom. And I was fortunate it wasn't one of my students who had done it, one of my students from the year before, though, uh, once they figured out who and what was going on. And uh, tying it back to what we were talking about originally, one of the reasons why he wasn't in a lot more trouble is because they determined one of the reasons at fault for him doing this was unmet needs. He's having a lot of problems at home. And furthermore, ADHD and impulsivity. His friend said, hey, like, wouldn't it be funny if, and he just kind of did it without thinking about, hey, maybe this is a bad idea. Right, without thinking it through to, well, if I do this and someone sees it, what's going to happen? And that's a really strong statement on ADHD. There's no kid in any high school that doesn't understand about the shootings that have gone on and how serious writing something like that is. So he clearly just didn't think that through to the next step. And if someone had said that to him and like, do you think it would be a good idea to write a, sh- a threat to shoot up to school on the bathroom wall in class? He probably would have been like, no, that's a terrible idea. Yeah. But his friend is like, Hey, wouldn't it be funny if that's a different way to frame it? And it, well, yeah, it would also be funny. It would be a terrible idea, but it would also be funny. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to only see the funny part and not see the terrible idea side because of how it was framed to me. And then, of course, we're also talking back to uh, the hierarchy of needs. We're talking about acceptance there. Right. Absolutely. And in many cases, those are the things that these kids are worrying about. They don't really care about what happened in this book or whether or not they get a good grade on this test. If they're feeling like they're an outsider or they they have to impress their friends or they don't know if they're going to have food when they get home. That's what's so, especially in in a school like you're working in where there's so much poverty, that's heartbreaking. Like that's got to be hard. And you're carrying that load as their teacher. Starting year 18, at this point, I've never worked in a school that hasn't been like this. Mm -hmm. I can only imagine that, you know, it would be easier. But then again, you know, a number of years ago, I interviewed in a a number of different schools. And uh, the schools were very different. The climate was very different. But all kids have problems. All families have problems. Uh, Some towns are better at addressing them. Some towns are better at uh, uh, acknowledging them. But all towns have problems. Absolutely. And the best case scenario is that we can face those problems head on and face them with a level of accurate information that is necessary and people who are skilled in navigating them. Exactly. I mean, our school has three times the number of uh, guidance counselors and then the school that I went to. And does it have three times the number of kids too, or just? About the same size. That's awesome. Yeah. That's great to hear because there's not enough guidance counselors in schools. Mm -hmm. As a guy who studied to do that, going to say a little bias there no I, I yeah but not because i want a job because like i'm this yeah. is fine like i'm pretty successful with this adhd stuff mm-hmm. but knowing the needs that kids have and being the guy who consults with schools and talks to them about social emotional learning and adhd and the emotional impact of learning disorders and all that stuff there are not enough people in schools who are trained and knowledgeable around the mental health side of what these kids are facing mm-hmm. and Teachers can't be informed enough, yeah. not because there's so much information that you should get always be getting more because I guess, yeah, but your job is to teach them. Like you need to be focusing on the teaching. Mm-hmm. It should not be the expectation that all oh, the teachers will pick up the slack for our lack of guidance counselors. We'll just train them in how to do social emotional learning. That's often the stopgap, but teachers are expected to do, to do all of the things. Mm-hmm. The expectations on teachers it's incredible. You need to be 
able to take care of these kids. We need to have you teaching them the executive functions and the manners and the pro social skills and how to navigate their emotions. And oh, by the way, could you also teach them whatever your subject is? Mm -hmm. That's a lot to expect of a teacher. And that's not what we do with other professions. We don't have like, oh, well, your doctor should be teaching you how to take care of your kids and also how to eat healthy and also how to exercise. And by the way, could you check on the wart on my finger? Like <laughs> that's not how it goes. You just check on the wart on the finger and you move on. And if there is something in there, there's a referral to somebody right. else. And teachers just don't get to do that. They, I mean, a little bit, but mm -hmm. for the most part, there's not enough social workers and guidance counselors in schools for a teacher yeah. to say, I'm worried about this kid. So we wind up only hitting the heavy hitters and there's other kids that are in the middle that aren't getting the attention they need because they're not dangerous. And I mean, some of what we're also expected to do is, you know, watch out for warning signs or see if this kid is doing okay, you know, be kind of the guardian of their mental health as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, do you think that little Timmy is, uh, is using drugs or something like that? Um, funny enough, kind of again, tying it back because, you know, I kind of work in, in, uh, in loops here. Talking about unmet needs, you're also talking about things like drug abuse problems. Mm -hmm. you right. Know, because those are self-medications that people use to try to meet those needs. Absolutely, they are. Yeah. And students that have ADHD, if they're feeling like they're, they can't achieve, they're feeling like they can't make the goal or, or whatever, and especially if they hit that, that level of despair, frequently, you know, drug abuse is one of the, the primary go-tos. If they feel frantic, slowing themselves down by using a substance is a very easy way of dealing with it without really dealing with it. Oftentimes, that's a, almost a solace, right? Like it's a safe haven. Like, oh, I can do this thing. And, and some kids, it's even a way to, to push people back. It becomes that acceptance stuff, the in-group and out-group. Like my group mm -hmm. does this stuff and that other group doesn't do that. And mm -hmm. now I know where I belong because all my friends are doing it. That's the peer pressure side of it. Sort of tying a couple knots in here the notion that you need to be looking for red flags as a teacher, right? There's a lot of red flags for you to look at just in this conversation that we're having, right? We've already <laughs> indicated, we've already indicated drug abuse, violence, right? Like, is this kid going to shoot up the school? And not even just, is this kid going to shoot up the school? But you're probably even looking for red flags around like relationships. Like, does that relationship seem safe to me for that girl to be with that boy or those, whatever's happening? Maybe that boy to be with that girl. Cause that happens too. Certainly. Is that relationship safe? Do I need to pay attention to that red flag? Oh, and by the way, I have to pay attention to grades. And so you have a principal maybe knocking on your door and being like, hey, did you know that Timmy's bombed like the last three tests? Because I just got a call from mom. How come you missed this one? And you're like, well, I didn't miss when Timmy was going to shoot up the school. And I didn't miss Sally and John's relationship. And I didn't miss... Becky's addiction to whatever substance Becky's addicted to, but I did miss Billy's poor grades. Like you can only pay attention to so many red flags. Mm -hmm. So I mean, I commend you on yeah. the sheer number of things you have to pay attention to. And in some ways it's, it's really great because they kind of, uh, they, they don't lump, you know, usually you're dealing with one issue at a time, sometimes right. two, you know, it's, it's also, this is, this is what their lives are like too. They're dealing, they're juggling these balls just like we are. Sure. And I mean, having done it, I know that often the red flags cluster. This kid is failing and addicted to something and there's abuse at home or whatever. Like often one red flag leads to another red flag. Because again, everything is tied together. Right. Yeah. None of this stuff exists in a vacuum. Um, so I just, I just got to give you credit, man. Like you're, 
<laughs> especially in the, with the population you're working with. Like it's not an easy population to work with. And, and you've been doing it for, for 18 years. Something like that. Starts so, 18. Yeah. Yeah. Good on you. <laughs> and you, and you've been successful. I've gone to your school. I know you have a good rep in that building. I've been there to do the PDs. Yeah. We got a great staff though. We do a lot of collaboration with each other. Uh, if there's an issue that we see, we immediately try to figure out, all right, well, who else is little, you know, little Timmy's teacher, you know, is, is Timmy just failing my class or is he failing everything? Did he say something in class? Is he dealing with this? How does this relate to his IEP and all of that? We, we have those discussions when we can. So let's walk through that process. Sure. Right. We're worried about Timmy. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Let's say Timmy's bombed three tests in a row. Mm -hmm. And so now we're concerned about him. What does that process look like? Like really spell it out. What, do, what is the Ooh. scope and sequence of that? We have an informal process and we have a formal process too. So let's play with the informal first and then go to the formal. Sure. If I'm worried about a student, the first thing I'm going to do is uh, I'm going to figure out whether or not I should talk to the student about it. Some students are a little more uh, you know, forthcoming than others. If I approach a certain student and say like, are you all right? Some of them are going to break down in tears and start telling me like, this is what's going on. Uh, some of them are going to say, yeah, whatever, and just walk out. So right off the bat, what is my relationship with that student? How am I going to deal with that? Now, if I do have a student that I do have a good working relationship with and I'm concerned about and they give me an unfine whatever and it's obvious that they're not fine, I'm going to check in with them again. On the other hand, if, if they're going to break down immediately, um, I always try to remind them, look, you need to know I'm a mandated reporter. Certain things you tell me, I have to tell somebody. It's part of my job. It's part of the law. And if you don't want to tell me this thing, we're going to enter into some, some shady territory. But if you're worried, you really need to talk to somebody. And so kind of navigating that line as well. Mm -hmm. I've had students say, like, literally say to me, when I've asked them, are you all right? They've said, no, but you're a mandated reporter, so I'm not going to tell you why. Okay. Wow. And uh, what do you do with that? <laughs> uh, and Well, what I did was immediately talk to the other teachers. Is that step two? Who are their other teachers? If they have four classes a day, sometimes they have every other day classes, so they might have five or even six teachers, but at very minimum, there's four of us. Who are the other three? What do I know? You know, what, what might they know? What might they have discovered? If the student is really loving art and that's kind of their place to go or their, their sort of haven away from everything else, the art teacher might not notice anything because this kid's going to be all sunshine and roses in class, but they might be hating English history and math. On the other hand, maybe it's just the classes where they're in with certain kids. Maybe it's a bullying problem. So right there, we can kind of identify just by comparing notes. Where do we see the behavior? What have we noticed? What have the students said? What are their friends saying? Anything like that? Because I mean, kids talk, teachers hear. It's just a thing. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we can kind of break it down. And then if there's something that we can do, we can frequently get involved. Or again, maybe that one teacher that they do have that great relationship with offers to kind of step forward and say like, yeah, why don't I talk to them? Um, and then maybe we get some answers. Sometimes we're not told. Sometimes, you know, math teachers talks to the kid. By the end of the week, the kid's doing better. We talk to the math teacher and they say, don't worry, I handled it. And we just let it go. Because, I mean, as much as we're involved, their privacy is important. We do need to respect that at times. You know, again, 
not if it's going to be something that's long-term, not if there's that, you know, mandated report of difficulty that we have to report, but if the problem is solved and it's a personal thing, maybe it is none of our business. Mm -hmm. Now, if no teacher has a way of dealing with this, um, we don't know how to approach this, the problem is ongoing, usually if it's not a big deal, that's when we'll start looking at the formal process. If it's big, we frequently go to the formal right away. And we do have a uh, uh, sort of a, a student in need reporting form that we, uh, we can send off right away. It's all digitized, we can load it right up, we can send it in an email immediately to, uh, to their guidance counselor and then that gets the ball rolling. If one of these forms is completed, the guidance counselor, their... Um, so now we've moved into the formal process, it sounds like. Exactly. exactly. Okay. Um, and once that formal process goes, there's, you know, uh, provisions for making appointments with the parents, making appointments with the kids, guidance talking to them. If there is some sort of potential of abuse or some sort of potential for, you know, something that's undiagnosed, frequently we try to get the parents to okay certain uh, testing to see, well does Johnny actually have ADHD and, you know, never got diagnosed and isn't getting services. Mm -hmm. I've had students that that's exactly been what's going on. Um, they were able to handle it in, let's say, seventh grade, eighth grade, ninth grade, 10th grade rolls around. The work is just a little bit harder. They plateau out. Their, their skill, their level where they can just, you know, get a B without doing any homework at all, without ever studying for tests. Now it's a D or an F. Or maybe it's that one hard teacher, that one hard class, or maybe this year they went out for football and now they've got too much on their plate and they don't have that ability to kind of juggle all these balls at once. And it's actually because there's this undiagnosed condition that's going on. Piggybacking on that a little bit. Another way that ADHD cannot go off the rails, like sort of that finely balanced ADHD of high school where you're sneaking by, you don't have the 504, you don't have the IEP, you're just but you got the ADHD, you just maybe don't even know it. There's a hundred reasons that that balance can be ruined. So some of it is you go for football, you try for the school play, you get a job, but even you get a girlfriend or your girlfriend breaks up with you. Those things, social challenges, your friends don't want to talk to you anymore. That stuff can nuke you really hard, really fast too. Because that's where the high interest is and that's where their attention is going to go first. Right, absolutely. And the same thing is true with, again, you know, going back to unmet needs, you know, if, if there's a kid who's, uh, whose mom's in the hospital and, you know, getting cancer treatment and they're, you know, a, a straight A student last year, but now all of a sudden, all of their focus is going into that worry for their mom. How are they going to keep those grades up? Those grades don't matter as much as mom does. And they shouldn't. Yeah. No, they shouldn't. Another unmet need for kids with ADHD, and this is kids diagnosed or undiagnosed, is the underlying guilt and shame that comes with it that why can't I consistently perform at the same level all the time? How come sometimes I'm amazing and sometimes I suck? Or I'm sneaking by with the B, but I know I don't deserve this B, except that you got it, so probably you do. But you're feeling like, I don't deserve this B because I didn't hand in any homework assignments. And I'm just not realizing homework is weighted really minorly for this teacher. And it's really the tests and quizzes that matter or the projects that matter, and I happen to be killing it on those. The weight of that imposter syndrome that so many folks with ADHD have can build and build and build. And then, cause you specifically mentioned sophomore year, right? Sophomore year is when all of a sudden, not with a heavy hand yet, cause the heavy hand comes next year, but sophomore year is when all of a sudden it's like, Hey, college, Hey, that's a thing. Start, 
start being concerned about what your grades mean and what your performance means around what college you're going to get into. That's when that sort of thought process and conversation starts to come up a little more heavily. It happens a little bit freshman year, but not too much. That can knock me off too. Oh, yeah. One thing I've noticed, this is very informally, you know, my, my own observations. Um, every time there's a um, sort of jump in brain development, mm-hmm. um, which does happen somewhere between the end of sophomore year, beginning of junior year, there's a, there's a big sort of inferential complex processing that your brain finally unlocks and you can finally kind of uh, uh, really symbolically, metaphorically, or thematically kind of break certain things down. There's... How can I put this the right way? The moment your brain can see that the world is bigger than you thought it was, mm-hmm. that you can see that there's more that you can do, there's more meaning out there. Certain students go, ah, and shut down. There's just too much there. There's too much going on. Their brain can now see more of it. And either they get fascinated by it and they dump, jump in and they're like, wow, like, why don't I go back and like watch my favorite TV show and see if like this theme appears here. Or maybe it's like, I don't want to be complex thinking all the time. This is too much. I need to stop. And, uh, and that can have an effect as well. You know, sometimes they're, they're ready for that extra step of, up of work, but they're not ready for all that implies and all that brings with it. And they kind of need to go a little bit easy at times and, and not get overloaded all at once. Yeah, that makes sense. I can see that. Mm-hmm. I think that's part of what ruined comic books for me for a little while there. <laughs> I majored in comics in college, ladies and gentlemen. Mm-hmm. And so I got pretty deep into what they meant and what was going on and all that stuff. And I couldn't read a comic book and just enjoy it anymore. I took it apart panel by panel, like that level of unnecessary thought process around it. And comics became less fun. And for a little while there, I started to work almost in the industry. I started to kind of flirt with that. And so I could make the transition to working in the industry and using this knowledge in a creative way but I couldn't use it to consume in the same way anymore. And so that I can see kids in high school encountering that challenge of, well, now I get it's sticking with English. Cause that's what you do. I can, now I get stories at a level that I didn't get them before. And I, and it's kind of messing with my ability to consume them, but I'm, I have no interest in writing them. Like just not where I am. And that can throw kids off. What's also interesting is the students that have not really found their level of challenge yet. Again, going back to that differentiated instruction, yeah. if they haven't really felt like they've been challenged, if they're coasting along, and then they're hit with this idea that, wow, there's actually this whole other level to things that I haven't even thought of, sometimes that's going to perk them up. Sometimes that's going to be the thing that like, all right, I'm doing the same level of work, but like, I'm going to write my own story now and I'm going to try to use this template and like a, a what if, if this character did this different thing. And now suddenly they're, they're engaging with the work in a completely different way, higher order thinking, they're challenged and they're happy. On the other hand, there are some students who really like defining themselves as like the smartest kid in the class. And if they hit this level of ability around the same time that the other kids do or later, or maybe earlier and then they see other people catch up, that can disrupt the balance. And they suddenly feel like, but I've always been smart. I should just understand this. And now I don't. Right. And that can completely take the wind out of their sails. Or I always thought I understood this. Turns out I feel like I understood nothing. What's the point of this anymore? And it can be a huge discouragement for certain students, depending on how they, again, define themselves and their, their academic and intellectual experience. So how do you navigate that as a teacher? 
honestly, on a case by case basis, realistically, you know, trying to find that, you know, if you have a kid that's just giving up, can you find something that's going to perk them up again? You know, if this kid read this book all the way through and loved it, you know, everybody else is halfway through, but they love it because they've never seen anything like it before, point them toward two or three more things in the same way. On the other hand, if they hit that, that difficulty and they say like, well, what's the point anymore? Give them a point, give them something like try to find some interest that you can link it to or, or something that they have enjoyed, try to make them enjoy it again. So very, very case by case and very person specific. Yeah. And sometimes again, going back, uh, differentiating instruction really is kind of a, um, an informal process trying to do this for these kids sometimes even writing it up as a formal plan later. So you document what you've had, what you've done, and then maybe you can use it again for another student. Mm -hmm. Cause you could differentiate just based on interest. It doesn't have to only be ability level. You can be, I've got a class where half the kids all love sports and the other half are all really into emo stuff. Mm -hmm. And we're reading two totally different stories, not based on ability level, but these kids get the sports book. These kids get some Edgar Allan Poe stuff. Mm -hmm. And we're going to talk about loss. Mm-hmm. from two different angles. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, there's, uh, there's some work that some English teachers have done on uh, um, yeah, literary circles, the idea of students that read different books and then come back together to talk about the same themes. They have time to read on their own. Frequently, you know, again, this student reads slower. You recommend them one of these three books because they're, you know, a little shorter or the chapters are a little shorter or something like that. And then this student, you know, is a fast reader you give them one of these three books because the books are a little longer or they're a little more complex and that'll kind of keep them going a little bit more. And even that is playing with those unmet needs. I want to make sure I'm meeting your needs where they are and everyone is a little bit in a little bit of a different spot. So we do our best because we can't have 20 kids and every kid is reading a different book and doing a different thing. That's a little intense, but we can break them up yeah. into three groups if necessary and, mm-hmm. and help them help meet those needs where we can. Yeah. Um, and the same thing can be done with parents at home too, by the way, you can pay attention to what, what, maybe what are your kids unmet needs? Or if you've got more than one kid, how are you differentiating your parental instruction to help mm-hmm. them get the stuff done that they need to get done? One of the most difficult words to deal with in an educational or family setting is the idea of fair. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, my four year old is very focused on the idea of fair right now. And fair to him means everything is equal regardless of whatever what anybody else needs um equitable is a a better word at times to really describe what it is it's not about you know i would love to hear a four-year-old say the word equitable oh yeah i'm he's not gonna get slaughtered (laughs) Um, yeah 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 um but it is it is that idea that you know Person A might need three of something. Person B might need five of something, but that's where the need is. So if you've got eight, one gets three, one gets five. They don't both get four because then one's going to have one too many and one's going to be, you know, not functional. Right. You know, you've got to figure out that need and meet that need where it is. And if you've got kids of different ages, different interests, different uh, um, achievement levels, different levels of caring about school. You know, if you've got one kid who's really social and the other one who's really intellectual and, you know, has a small group of friends that they, they, you know, spend time with, but they don't do a lot of, you know, larger things socially, 
then they're going to have these very different needs. One of them might really just need to talk to their two friends tomorrow. The other one might really need to, you know, go and, and, and do something with a larger group, and that's meeting their social needs. Mm-hmm. Maybe kid number one really likes reading books on a, a Kindle or a, an e-reader, and the other one really can't deal with the non-physical aspects, not flipping around, not being able to flip back and forth to a page. You might actually need a physical copy of the book, maybe their own, so they can write it in, annotate it, draw circles, like do whatever they do with it. Um, and again, that's just their needs as readers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and because sometimes that, like I know for me, I try to read my nonfiction in a paper in paperback and I'll, I'll read fiction mm-hmm. on my Kindle all day. Mm-hmm. But for me, reading nonfiction, it's turning the page slows me down. Yep. And so I have processing time mm-hmm. as I'm reading because I just kind of turn the page and I can go back to a section more easily than I can with a Kindle. So mm-hmm. it's really hard for me to read nonfiction on a Kindle fiction. It doesn't matter. I don't usually have to go back. I just kind of keep going and going and going until I'm done and, Mm-hmm. If I remember the story, great. And if I don't, that's okay too, because I'm not going to teach that book. But the nonfiction stuff I read, I usually want to remember that stuff. Um, what I have noticed, and again, back to ADHD in question yeah, here, yeah. the students that I have that are, are moderate to high functioning that also have ADHD, uh, that paperback is really necessary. And some of them, they know it. And they, they go out and they buy their own book because that way they can dog ear this and write in that and they can, you know, whatever. Part of it is that idea, like you said, of slowing them down, the, the physical mechanisms of reading. And I don't think enough has really been done to kind of study the, what the physical mechanism of reading actually does for the brain. Mm-mm. But I don't know if you've ever done this, but you know, you're, you're reading along, you see something, you think it's a reference, but you're not sure. So you put a bookmark in or like leave oh, your yeah. and you flip back 10 pages and go and you find exactly what it was that you saw. Oh yeah, of course. In chapter one. So you just spend half an hour instead of reading, you're going back and rereading in three different places in three different chapters, but now you know what to expect next. Right. And that's super hard with an e-reader. It's much easier to do that paperback. I worked with a kid. This is forever ago. I wasn't even a teacher yet. I was a TA. So this is, I'm probably going back 20 years at this point middle school kid who had uh, ataxia telangiectasia, which is an incredibly rare, rare disorder that um, just issues with how the brain communicates with your muscles and muscular atrophy and all kinds of stuff. He couldn't read. Like he could read, but he couldn't read for an extended period of time because his eye muscles couldn't handle it. Oh, wow. So he could only read for so long. And consequently, at least at the time, I don't, he's, thankfully still around. But at the time, his memory wasn't that great. And his executive functions weren't that great. Although I didn't know what executive functions were back then. Because he wasn't getting the practice of extended periods of time reading. And the, that yeah. deep work and deep focus that comes from reading even just a chapter in a book. Because he couldn't do it. He just physically couldn't do it. And it was fascinating to me, even back then, when I first realized what was going on, I was like, wait, this is because you can't read physically and that's affecting how your brain is developing and your ability to remember stuff and sort of put complex ideas together so i'm with you and i think it's interesting you mentioned memory in there as well i would say that one of my intellectually one of my uh uh greatest assets has has been that i have a really good memory and that combined with being a fairly fast reader has given me a, a great access to stories in a lot of different ways i can sit down and i can read 60 pages in an hour 
and remember most of it, meaning that the next time I sit down for another hour, I can read a large chunk, remember most of it, and then kind of compare to what was passed. Mm-hmm. Some of that is skills that I've learned. Some of it is skills that I've learned in class or on my own. And some of it is just that, that raw processing power of the memory combined with the speed. So students that don't have the practice of reading, because reading is that accrued skill, you get better at it over time. If they don't have the practice reading, they don't have the skill at reading, they don't have the skill at remembering, they don't have the skill of comparing what they remember to what they're reading now, and all these things build up over time. So if you have a student in, let's say, ninth grade, who's never finished a book, and I've had those, who never reads on their own, who doesn't have any books in their house because no one in their house reads. They like sports, they watch TV, but even TV, they like things that are shorter. They don't really watch, you know, anything that's that, you know, we would consider complex. They're going to be missing skills that those other kids who read for fun have. And they don't read at home because reading was difficult when they were younger. And there's a, a, an avoidance that's built up which frequently can co- coincide with ADHD, that avoidance is going to continually keep them behind when everybody else is making incremental steps. Yeah, so continuing with our circling back, give that kid a comic book because they're more accessible. It seems like there's smaller chunks, even though they're not. And, and maybe a graphic novel, but definitely, if you can hand that kid a stack of comics, <laughs> I'm done. I read 32 pages and I'm done. And they're all, they have pictures all over them. And the complexity of the storytelling of a comic book is pretty huge. And we've done studies on the typical language use in a comic book versus the typical language use in most other forms of literature. And comic books are higher and more accessible because the pictures support the reading. So comic books are typically scoring in and around college level Mm. for vocabulary. Whereas your eighth grade is sort of the standard, right? For, for newspapers and such, throw some comics at that kid. Um, And then as we sort of come in for a landing, do you have any ending essentials? And it can be related to what we've already spoken about around unmet needs or differentiated instruction or the challenges of being an English teacher in high school, or it can be something completely different. It's up to you. Um, But do you have any ending essentials you'd like to share with the audience? Do we have time for a little bit of a story? Yeah, yeah. So a number of years ago, I had this student. He was probably the worst case of ADHD I've ever seen. Or, or if not, definitely top three. Um, when he had his first year, we had a math teacher who also had his first year. And this kid was crawling underneath the desks, grabbing kids' legs during tests, making noises out of the movie Jaws. <laughs> no impulse control, easily distracted. What's worse, in English, he knew he wasn't a good reader. He didn't like reading. It made him uncomfortable. And so he would deliberately get tossed out of class two, three times a week in middle school, Mm -hmm. meaning that he didn't get that practice. So he was years behind. Uh, When I had him in ninth grade, I had to remove him from class minimum once a week. I don't throw kids out ever if I can help. He would be so disruptive that all eyes were on him. No work would get done. He had to leave. It 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 was horrible. This math teacher I mentioned would go home and compare stories with his wife, who was a kindergarten teacher, and they'd be the same stories. So this student, uh, we were reading The Outsiders, and uh, he liked it. This is the first book he said he'd ever actually liked. 
and part of that is, you know, a little bit deliberate, you know, I, I chose the book because of the, the students, because of some of the things they'd mentioned. The Outsiders is often the first book that kids yeah. like. <laughs> yeah. He loved it. But then it came time around, you know, you know, we have to deal with grades, gave a test. He looked at the test. He answered question one, complete sentence. Answered question two in about half a sentence. Wrote a one-word answer for number three. Wrote poop for number four and drew a line down the page and put his head down. Yeah. When I went over to talk to him about it, he uh, he just said, look, I'm just dumb. I'm not going to do this. This is stupid. And I said, well, I mean, can you give it a try? And then he started, he he did what he normally did. He tried to get kicked out of class. And I I had to remove him because, you know, everybody else is is trying to deal with this test. In the little report that I had to fill out, I, I said, I recommend that you give him a detention with me as a punishment. He needs to not be in the room, but have him come back in the last five minutes. We'll schedule something. And when he came around the next day for that, uh, that detention, I held up the test. And I said, this is what we're doing. And he groaned and he, he said, can I just leave? And I'm like, no, try it my way. Ah, fine. Sat down at the back end of the room, put his head down and I gave him the test. And I said, hey, so you remember when this happened? It's like, yeah. What did she say? And he repeated it back to me word for word. Like literally, I went back and checked. He said it word for word. Of course and he did. Said, okay, yeah. Write it down for question number one. It's like, oh, okay. He wrote it down. Question number two did the same thing. You know, what happened here? By the second page, I was just reading the question. And he would <laughs> tell me the answer. I would tell him to write it down. And he would say, oh. Like it was a surprise and he'd write it down. 96%. There was actually one question where he wrote something down differently from what he'd said. I gave him the points anyway, because I knew he knew it. The, the write it down was actually my way of having proof that I then showed him after I graded it. I showed him a done test that he had completed and I needed him to know that he could do it. Hey, you're still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at ADHDessentials.com. And don't forget to check out the website, ADHDessentials.com. And visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. 10% better is all you need.